Welcome to WIHI, an online talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Mike Britton, and I'm an editorial director here at IHI. I'll be your host today, sitting in for Madge Kaplan. WIHI, as many of you know, is a live biweekly show, and after we sign off, is also offered via IHI.org on iTunes or your favorite podcast subscriber. Whether this is your first WIHI or your 50th, welcome. We're happy to have you with us. Mention of the word burnout in relationship to work can be a bit of a showstopper. Most of us have experienced being in this state, and when you're in the midst of just barely keeping your head above water, it doesn't seem like anyone or anything can help. People's suggestions seem like just one more thing you're supposed to do. Right now in healthcare, there's plenty of talk about physician and staff burnout caused by numerous factors. And there's also a growing chorus talking about joy and work as both the response and preventative to burnout. At first blush, the idea of joy may seem a bit of a stretch, even downright annoying, but there's a lot behind this effort, and that's our topic on this edition of WIHI. I hope no one is surprised that IHI and many dedicated improvers have been thinking hard about a systematic way to come at this vexing and often painful issue of health professionals feeling as though they're drowning in a sea of expectations today, always running behind and with no end in sight. Nothing could be more important to understand and address as we're about to hear from some folks on the front lines who are developing effective strategies. But before we get to our panel and our introductions, here's IHI's John Gothier to remind all the WHI's, WIHI listeners today about how to make the most of your time with us. John? All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of your screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, uh, before, you know you can find out all about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Mike up opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged on to the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, and a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at, IHI, info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for a way to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Mike. Thanks, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at, a, at about the halfway mark of the show today. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with other followers. Now it's time to introduce our esteemed panel. First, from Wisconsin, joining us is Kathy Kircher. She has been with Bell & Health for 16 years. For the, per for the past seven, Kathy has been the team leader of operations for primary care. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great. Thank you. Uh, also on the phone, Steve Swenson. He's the medical director for leadership and organization development and a professor in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. He is a senior fellow of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and has been working both at Mayo and with IHI on effective strategies to address burnout. Welcome, Steve. Great, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, thank you. And we have two guests in studio today. First, a big welcome to Joanna DeFleeti, who is currently the Associate Medical Director for Primary Care Quality and Innovation in the General, Medical, General Internal Medicine Department at Boston Medical Center. Joanna, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And this is your first time at IHI. This is. Welcome yes. to IHI. Thank you. Also in the studio, IHI's president and CEO, Derek Feely, who previously served as IHI's executive vice president from 2013 to 2015. Prior to that, Derek served as director general for health and social care in the Scottish government and chief executive of the National Health Service in Scotland. Welcome, Derek. Thank you, Mike. I also want to acknowledge IHI Vice President Andrea Cabzanel joining by phone, who will be on hand during our Q&A. 
Andrea has also had a big role in IHI strategies around leadership and also addressing how cl clinicians can get to joy and work. So let's get started. Derek, we're going to start with you today. So one of, one of the things, one of the first things many of us learned about you when you came to IHI three years ago is how passionate you are about leadership and the behaviors and actions that make good leaders. How does this connect to our topic today, replacing burnout with joy and work? Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, too, for stepping into Madge's shoes today. We really appreciate it. So people uh, think about joy and work as if it's a, it's a new concept, but actually it's not. Uh, uh, joy and work was something that Edwards Deming talked uh, a lot about he, when he explored this idea of what's the psychology of change. Uh, what, what is it that leaders need to do? And, I, and indeed, Deming saw the creation of joy and work as core for uh, leaders and managers. Uh, and he related it in a way that we will try to do later on to people feeling a sense of purpose and having a sense of control over their work. Uh, and I think that's an important concept to which we'll return. So how big a problem is this? It's significant. Um, the 60% of um, physicians considering leaving practice, nearly three in four know someone who's left practice already due to poor morale. It's not confined to physicians. Nurses also are suffering from uh, burnout, low morale, and thinking about uh, leaving. If, if we saw these numbers in a, a clinical or epidemiological setting, um, we would be really worried. We would describe this as an epidemic, I suspect. It has a significant impact. It has an impact on the, the business of healthcare. Um, so we know that there's a, rela a relationship between uh, poor staff engagement, which is often caused by burnout, uh, and these kind of issues, customer satisfaction, productivity, turnover, as our uh, burning platform numbers suggest, uh, and accidents. Uh, and perhaps even more importantly, there's a strong evidence base that burnout affects patients. Uh, we know that there's a strong association between uh, employee satisfaction, employee engagement, uh, and high levels of care. Uh, and so the flip side of that is that when we see people who are burned out at work, um, they are struggling to provide the level of empathy um, that they want to. They're struggling to give patients the care that they so desperately uh, want to offer. Uh, and so uh, there's a a relationship, a correlation, therefore, between physician burnout and, and patient satisfaction. We made a very conscious decision uh, to, to talk about this in terms of joy and work, um, partly because we were following Deming's lead, but also as we, uh, as we thought about this, we wanted to flip the debate. We wanted to get people to think about this in terms of assets rather than in terms of deficits. And so just as Antonovsky and others talk about uh, health as more than the absence of disease, we've come to think about joy as more than the absence of burnout. It's actually something that we want to create and foster in a positive sense uh, and to reconnect people to their real purpose as, uh, as healthcare workers. Um, and just as Antonovsky found as he studied people who had thrived in uh, often incredibly difficult environments, what made a difference for them is whether they had a sense of coherence, whether they saw their life as, uh, as uh, Antonovsky described as comprehensible, as simple. Did their, did their situation make sense to them? Did they understand um, the structure of, of, their, uh, of their environment? Did they feel as if they had what it, what it took to make progress? Did, could they, did they see their task as manageable? And then did they feel connected to it? Did they feel a sense of meaning and purpose? Uh, and so part of our uh, theory is that um, that sense of coherence is likely also to be a strong uh, motivator of joy in the healthcare workforce. And then as we um, started to think our way through this, we began to see a, a path. Uh, because as we, when we first spoke to people about joy and work, um, one of the things that we found difficult was to get them to see the, 
how they could make a single leap from where they stood with uh, burnout in proportions that we just saw to joy in work. And so we've been trying to encourage people rather to see this as a number of steps, to see that this is something of a hierarchy. Where we start, as we often start as we, uh, as we try to engage our patients and ask what matters to you. So we really try to understand from our providers um, what really matters to them, what are the things that are really important to them, what are the barriers and impediments to, to joy, and what are the things that would reconnect them to their work. Uh, secondly, we do this in context. So our second step is to recognize that not every work environment is the same. And so you really need to understand those impediments in the context in which the staff member is working. That can be different from hospital to hospital or from clinic to clinic. It can be different from ward to ward. Uh, because when we start to look at engagement and burnout numbers, even within hospitals, we see significant variations. Uh, we see bright spots and we see people who are really struggling. And that's why we need to really understand uh, what is going on at a very local level. So that's our second step, this understanding of those local impediments. The third is to get this idea of this being a shared responsibility. Yes, this is a job for managers and leaders, but it's a job for all of us. Uh, and one of the things that when we talked about joy at our recent uh, primary care summit, we, uh, we showed a video of uh, an Australian general called General Morrison who talked about um, this idea that you should never walk past. Uh, and I think it's the same in healthcare. If any of us at any level of the organization identify some of these impediments to joy, identify colleagues who are being treated in a less than civil way by their peers, it's our duty to intervene. So yes, this is leaders' jobs, the job of leaders, it's the job of managers, but it's the job of everyone. And then our fourth step is that there are many validated approaches out there. Let's um, test our way to success. Let's apply what we've, we've begun to understand around applying improvement science to plan, do, study, act our way uh, using validated um, methodologies uh, to achieving joy at, at scale. And so this is our emerging uh, model. It takes account of all of that sociology from uh, from way back. It, uh, it owes a great deal to work that uh, Andrea Capsonell and Steve Swenson led in a IHI innovation project. It draws heavily on what we understand our partners are doing, and you're going to hear something about that. It draws from work that our IHI Leadership Alliance has been doing also. Um, and it's a model. It's a framework. Uh, it needs, it needs tested, it needs prototyped, um, but we think it has some, uh, some benefit and some utility. So thanks, Mike. Great. Thank you, Derek. That was a great to walk through that framework, and thanks for setting such a strong foundation for us today. Next, we'll go to Steve Swenson, who you just mentioned. Uh, St Steve, leadership is a cornerstone of Mayo Clinic's strategy to reduce burnout, especially among physicians. Could you walk us back to when and why burnout got the organization's attention and then take us forward to what's been the nature of the response? Sure. Thanks, Mike. So if you look at the uh, prevalence of burnout, similar to the whole developed world, in America, 54% and the burned out physician is impaired. He or she is emotionally exhausted cynical, socially isolated, depersonalized, feel underappreciated. And like Derek was sharing with you, they, their professionalism isn't where it should be, their quality of care, their patient experience. So it's a huge opportunity for all healthcare to make uh, improvement in area. You know, it's hard to imagine, understand why the profession of caring for the health of others with all the potential for medium purpose as people who are the most burned out and dissatisfied of all of the different businesses. So this opportunity to grow joy and work for staff gives dividends for patients' families, it's safer care, it's better experience for organizations, it's better productivity, less turnover, and for individuals, nurses, social workers, managers, doctors, joy. 
So uh, delighted to very briefly share with you our experience at Mayo and the framework that Derek uh, shared with you basically mirrors what we're doing at Mayo. And so you can see that our strategy involves these three pieces, the shared responsibility, and it starts with, we look at all nurses, doctors, pharmacists, managers as leaders, and we all have this responsibility. So it's the shared responsibility of, of leaders. Second piece is drivers, that's the organizational shared responsibility. In resiliency, we list purposely a third, and that's the shared responsibility that is predominantly owned by the individual. So let's look at the, the leaders uh, piece here. And so in the next slide, um, this is the primary reason that we focus so heavily on uh, leaders' capabilities. We know, and we, uh, we have 123 department and division chairs that we measure 12 leadership dimensions on. And we know that for every point in that 60-point scale uh, of these annual assessments of a leader's uh, capability through the eyes of the people they serve, um, that it has a direct relationship with staff satisfaction and patient experience and an inverse relationship with burnout. And, and so we manage to that. And the secret sauce is not rocket science. And um, it's basically four behaviors of these leaders. And the first is showing appreciation. Mike, I really appreciate what you are doing to this organization. The second is taking an interest in their career. Derek, I really want to help you with the next phase of your career. How can we work together? Third is, I value your ideas, Kathy. Let's um, keep working on this together and let me hear what you're thinking. And the third and the fourth of these four ingredients in the secret thoughts for participant management is transparency. Joanna, here is all we know about uh, our activities in hematology. Let's work together. So leadership is key. And uh, if, if our leaders can't perform at the top of their game, uh, we move them out of those positions if we can't uh, coach them at the higher level of performance because our patients suffer and the people with whom they're working and meeting suffer. So now the second piece is, is about the drivers. This is predominantly the organizational responsibility. And the beauty of this whole approach that, that Derek outlined in the IHI framework is that basically it doesn't cost a nickel. All it costs is time and attention of leaders. And so the driver's piece is a way to look at the drivers of burnout through the eyes of the working providers, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, managers, asking them, like we ask patients, what matters to you? And so in a nutshell, it's basically participative management led by the local leaders with collaborative action planning, asking questions, what matters to you? What brings you joy in the work? What impedes that joy in work? And then working collaboratively, like ISI has taught us for the last three decades, to continuously look for ways to improve processes, uh, to improve the care for patients. And what we found over the years of looking at this, is there are four primary areas of opportunity that our staff give us for improvement. Inefficiencies or clerical work. The second is giving them some flexibility or control over your life, which is collaborative action planning does in and of itself. And third is the work-life balance, that if you improve efficiencies and the way the team works, the interdisciplinary team works together for work-life balance. And then the fourth is this whole space of second victim. So if, if you look at the third most common cause of preventable death in America, it's actually hospital preventable medical errors. And so as we seek to improve the safety and quality of care for patients, we're actually helping with burnout because simply the act of improvement in this collaborative action planning is therapeutic in and of itself and if you reduce the, um, uh, the opportunities to harm patients, that's one of the big drivers of burnout. So, so the, the, 
third piece then here is resiliency. And so resiliency on the, the previous slide, um, resiliency is basically primarily the responsibility of the individual to look at his or her wellness. And um, there are many evidence-based, and, and, and what I'm presenting with you today um, is based on over a dozen published research papers out of Mayo, including three randomized controlled trials with patients and uh, doctors. And, and basically, we see that uh, if we get colleagues together in groups for lunch or breakfast or hors uh, d'oeuvres after work just to talk about professionalism and the care of patients, that their burnout goes down and their engagement goes up. And we have a dozen different programs that you can see in the slide that relate to everything from the common uh, physical activity and getting enough sleep to the value of expressing gratitude or meditating or uh, laughter. So, um, and forgiveness. So, uh, that's the shared responsibility that's predominantly owned by the individual. Worst thing to do, though, in trying to improve joy at work is to start by talking to the individual doctor or nurse or pharmacist saying, you need to do yoga and eat more granola. First thing that an organization can do is address their leaders' role, the organization roles, removing the drivers of burnout, the impediment of joy, and then working with the individual to raise her or her fluency. And then the last uh, slide basically shows that the burnout rates among physicians in this country have been rising here as expressed uh, in the metric of emotional exhaustion. The results of our work at Mayo show us getting closer in the physician population to actually the 25% rate of burnout and emotional exhaustion in the American population in general. So we know that the time and attention without a capital budget of looking at caring for our providers and staff makes a difference for patients, makes a difference for them, and it makes a difference for the organization. And so this combined strategy of leaders, drivers, and resiliency on the last slide is basically what Eric was showing in the IHI framework of a methodical, evidence-based approach where we can be going to work and experience and safety for patients and their families. So, Mike, thanks for the opportunity. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. And apologies about some of the sound issues at the beginning. It sounds like that got a lot better for folks, and uh, we'll keep an eye on that as we go to Steve for Q&A later in the show. Uh, next, we're going to move to to Kathy. So we talked a bit about leadership as a framework, Kathy, already, and it sounds as though Bellin is focusing on burnout associated with outmoded practice models ill-suited to current patient volume and value expectations. So can you tell us, was, was there a wake-up call or a moment at Bellin that, that really accelerated these changes? Sure. Thank you. I can explain a little bit of the background first about Bellin um, and geographically where we're located. Um, northeastern part of Wisconsin and the lower half of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, this, in our organization, we are very innovative. We are the right size to be able to um, always constantly um, try to do the next best thing. And just a little timeline, we implemented our EHR back in 2010, first in our primary care clinics and then spread into our hospital. So we all are on the same system. and. It was actually in uh, 2014, February of 2014, we had a, a meeting with key physicians and uh, a few of us administrators having an honest conversation um, around that table as far as the what's happening today in healthcare, how are we delivering healthcare, and then from that conversation came out the level of burnout. And on the next slide, shows the, um, just a, a character of, of really the status of our physicians and how they were feeling. That, um, you know, 95% of their time is, is their eyes are in the computer and not focusing on the patient. Um, also has from that meeting has stemmed from um, discovering the um, overall increased demands on the EHR, the in-basket work, the onus on the providers, and then overall, the complexity of our patients. They're, they're getting sicker, 
um, and more complicated and limited resources to, to help support those patients. Um, on the next slide, just shows the, our model of care, our old model of care where the patient needs on top, everything that's funneled to the provider, recognizing the fact that um, over 50% of the tasks that were directed directly to the provider were below their skill set. Um, and then from that provider reviewing all those patient needs then would funnel to the appropriate uh, care team member. And on the next slide is from that meeting that we had back in um, 2014 with those providers, we then um, quickly got together a few of us administrators. I am considered the change lead, the overall operational lead on our um, achieving population health management through team-based care. I have a team of four physicians, two APCs, and a couple other administrators, and we quickly um, started meeting for every week, four hours, just really taking a, a blank piece of paper and designing what do we want to have for our ideal design and team-based care. And the uh, focus initially maybe was on physician burnout, but it quickly turned into discovering there's a bigger picture here. Um, recognizing the fact of level of burnout, but then also staff are burnt out as well. Um, feeling unsatisfied in their role, um, that 50% of the provider tasks carried down to RNs, 75% uh, of their current duties were, were beneath their skill set. So it was a real good, honest picture of, of how, we are, how we were structured at that time. We have a new approach, the screen that, or the, the screen that you're looking at here is three of our nine-step approach for population health management. And as we got in our planning team and started really focusing on these three, our three first steps, which is know your population, it was very eye-opening for the physicians to really um, focus on their whole panel of patients versus the patient that is in front of them for that time of service. So once we know our population and then we went into our teams, the care team of the RN and um, care team coordinators, et cetera, setting the goals. Once you know the population, what goals do we want to set um, regarding this population? And then from there is what resources, what care team members do we need on our team in order to um, be successful to achieve these goals? So in all of these steps, it really got um, provider engagement um, and in, in bringing joy back because they got a say um, in what in the design. They then are taking this now and leading this, this change in our organization, uh, meeting with their colleagues and um, really bringing back the, the excitement of, of patient care. And then RNs are leading in their respected area, et cetera. What the, you're seeing here is our advanced care model. The patient needs still up on top, the same. But in the middle is a core team, and there's additional um, individuals on our core team that we haven't had before. You still have the physician, the clinic RN, the uh, LPN MA, which is now called care team coordinators, um, the patient admission rep who does the scheduling and the registration of patients, the NPPA, and a new uh, core team member to our team is our behavioral health consultant. So together as a team, they are addressing those patient needs. And then also you see arrows on the outside going down to our extended care team. So based on that knowledge of the population, the design of the care team can include diabetic educators, case manager, a pharmacist, behavioral health um, therapist, um, our care team, our, our chronic care management team who handles our, our outreach to patients and then an RN care coordinator who is really focused on the highest risk or the uh, sickest patients within that panel. And here it's together working as a team. We have instituted uh, care team meetings weekly to talk as a team, not only the core team, but the extended care team members that are assigned to that, to that patient population are together talking about um, patient care led by the physician who, who helps um, assist uh, with the with the care of the patients, but it's really them sitting back and allowing the professionals on their team uh, reporting out and um, talking about the good work and the good outcomes they're they're 
they're having with our patients and making the changes with them. So we have, we operate, everything that we do in our, in our model is operated in three wins, a win for the patient, win for the care team, and win for the system. And our patient satisfaction has risen. We are now in the 97% um, and holding strong there from 91% overall in our care teams that are alive. And our, our care team satisfaction starting out with uh, about 45% of our, our care teams prior to going live on team-based care stating their set overall satisfaction is either very dissatisfied or dissatisfied in their current role. Six months after team-based care, has, we're up and live. Everybody is in the um, satisfied or very satisfied category. So that's a signal for us as a, as a true win that we're doing the right thing for all care team members, um, including the physicians. Great. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks for those comments. Uh, lastly, we're going to turn to Joanna before we open up our Q&A here. Uh, Joanna, safety net systems such as BMC, Boston Medical Center, don't get a pass with all the transformations taking place in healthcare today, as I'm sure you know. On many levels, that's a good thing, but the consequences of not being able to get out in front of how changes are impacting staff can be all the more dire, which is how BMC came face-to-face -face with one sure sign of burnout, an exodus of clinicians. So can you talk us through that? Tell us what happened and how BMC is trying to turn that pain into maybe even joy. Absolutely. Um, so, so yes, clinicians and staff at Boston Medical Center take care of extremely complex patients with multiple socioeconomic, medical, and behavioral health issues. Um, and so just a little bit about, about our department, our practice. Um, we are a large adult primary care practice within BMC. Um, we have an urban, diverse patient population. 80% of our patients are publicly insured. And we have a very large practice. There are 40,000 patients with 70 providers. So that's both physicians and nurse practitioners. We also have nearly 100 medical residents. Um, and our clinicians have varying lengths of practice uh, and areas of interest. So some do full-time clinical work and others see patients part-time and spend the remainder of their time on education or research. Um, we are mission-driven and people who work at BMC are really there uh, because they're committed to caring for these complex patients who might not be able to access care or import important services elsewhere. So the exodus that you alluded to, uh, we call it the exodus of 2011, uh, <laughs> happened, happened about five years ago. Um, a third of our providers left the practice. Wow. Yes, wow. yeah, it was it was hard to hard not to grab your attention. Um, so the cause was one that that we're all familiar with. It was the changing system of healthcare delivery and accountability without increased support. Um, so our clinicians were being asked to see more patients in less time. An emphasis was really placed on revenue, uh, patient volume, work RVUs, and less on the quality of the, the patient-provider interaction. Um, people felt like they had no control over their, their schedules. We heard about loss of control being a major factor in, in burnout, um, and that played a, a big role here. Um, people also felt like their ability to care for these complex patients was, was being compromised. Um, and, and they felt like their concerns were falling on deaf ears. Um, they hadn't been involved in the processes that led to this change. They felt like things were being done to them, not, not with them. Uh, so, so what did the practice do? Uh, we had to regroup and really find ways to re-engage with our, with our clinicians. Um, this was a wake-up call, needless to say, to the, to the hospital and to our department. So we began by creating a community that supported clinicians and the whole care team. And this required dedicating, and by that I mean protecting, uh, time for, for clinicians to be involved in practice meetings. We needed to get their input about how to make their jobs better. Um, and we needed to protect their time so that they could be involved in shaping the practice. We, as a practice, decided on four priority areas, integrated behavioral health, population health management, high-risk care management, and patient and care team experience. Each of these areas had a team that was focused on that issue, and each team was led by a clinician who had protected time to engage in this role. We also had to make it possible for clinicians to do their jobs, to see these complex patients in a relatively short amount of time. Um, so I'm going to inject a, a brief anecdote here, which is going to be my, my clinic schedule on Tuesday of this week. So um, I had 12 patients scheduled and 10 showed up. Some of my specialty colleagues would say that's, that's an easy afternoon. But in our practice, uh, 
not so much. So, so eight of these 10 patients were brand new to me and nine out of the 10 had active substance use issues and or significant behavioral health problems, all of which were impacting their chronic diseases um, that were really poorly right. controlled by the time they came sure. into my office. So, um, so one patient was an hour and a half late. I had to figure out how to fit her in. So if I were out there by myself trying to figure this out, I would have cried <laughs> and then maybe quit. Um, so, so we've worked really hard to put systems in place. Kathy was alluding to team-based care. We've really tried to um, to support clinicians and patients so that we don't feel like they're out we're out there on a limb by ourselves. Um, so the patient remains at the center of the care team, um, but we now have multiple people in the practice who are also part of that care team, including an outstanding pharmacy team who I think is listening in today. Thank you if you're there. Um, we have integrated behavior behavioral health social workers and psychiatrists, we have care coordinators, and we have disease-specific programs embedded in, in primary care, um, including a substance use treatment program, hepatitis C treatment, and a diabetes care treatment program. Um, so lastly, I just want to touch on the, the joyful parts of practice because uh, joy is not the absence of burnout, as Derek mentioned earlier. And I think that what really brings many clinicians joy is that patient provider interaction um, and so we've we've tried to protect time for our clinicians to delve into the the complicated nature of that relationship um, so we have monthly general internal medicine morbidity and mortality reports where, where clinicians get to present diagnostic challenges as well as um, relationship challenges um, we have GIM grand rounds and we have monthly clinical case discussions where again providers can talk about complicated cases, both medically complicated and socially and interpersonally complicated as well. Um, so, so this is really a, a work in progress. We, ha we have not figured out all of the answers. Um, we really continue to try to engage clinicians uh, and, and get their feedback. Um, we've developed a clinician experience survey that's based on some of the burnout surveys that we administer quarterly. And we also put out a tool that I, I like to call the uh, quality of life timeline. So, so when I started this job, one of my colleagues said to me, you have to show people where you are, um, what you've done and where you're headed. And so on a quarterly basis, we put out this timeline that shows the work we've accomplished, shows new initiatives highlighted in red, and then it shows what people can expect in the next six months um, that will hopefully continue to make their lives in clinic easier and more joyful. Wonderful, wonderful comments. Thank you very much. It sounds, one of the big themes that's coming is, is the engagement of staff, making sure that they feel like they're in control um, and giving them the power to make changes. So it's it's a nice thing that's stretched through all of the presentations today. Uh, John, let's let's jump into Q and A. And could you remind people how they can participate today? Yeah, of course. If you're going to ask a question or comment, and many of you have already started on the comments and the questions, uh, please send to all participants uh, down there on the right-hand corner of the chat, and that'll allow all your questions and comments to be seen uh, by the folks uh, following us on WebEx. Um, one question uh, that I saw that popped up from Ellen um, that might be uh, a, a good for Derek to tackle is how can leadership better align with and support the professional value and morale um, of the care team? And Derek's traveled a lot for IHI but all, and part of our leadership alliance. What organizations are doing this well and how, how can that leadership do this? Um, so I think that there are a number of levels to that, John. I think there is something for um, something what Joanna said, that part of what leaders need to do is create the space for this, to give people protected time, that, so, that this, so that this idea of joy and work doesn't become an add-on or an extra burden, but rather it's something that the organization is prepared to create time for. Um, I think there's also, um, this is not a job that leaders do from their offices. Leaders need to get out, be at the point of care, uh, and when they're there, they need to be authentic. Um, they need to go um, with their ears engaged rather than their mouths. Um, and they need to listen to understand, not to respond. So there's a whole host of behavioral things that I think leaders need to do. Uh, and then I think the, the, the final thing I would say is that um, there is something, it's been a theme I've seen occasionally come up, coming up in the comments, there is something that leaders need to do that's about... Um, 
people have talked about in terms of fun or but they need, there needs to be a kind of loosening up I think that, that health care you know, people at IHI know I have this kind of thing about um, us talking about the front lines of healthcare. Well, healthcare shouldn't feel like the front lines it shouldn't feel like war it should be a joyful place. It should be a place where of celebration and comfort and caring. And, and leaders need to set the example there. They need to set the tone. That's great. Thank you, Derek. And that that idea of leadership has come up a couple more times in the chat too. And and I wonder if uh, if our other guests, Joanna, Kathy, would would um, or Steve would like to take a take a shot at how to get leadership on board with these with these big initiatives, these big changes that you guys are working on? Um, I, I can start. This is Kathy again from Bell. And in our organization, um, when we, we had that meeting back in 2014 about the current state of how we're delivering care, um, there was key administrators both from our uh, senior leadership team all the way down to uh, you know, entry-level leaders, along with the clinicians having that honest conversation from that meeting then, we um, quickly um, got our planning team together and from the planning team, what was made of, of the core administrators and clinicians together as a team went and presented to all of our boards, executive board, finance committee, um, our executive committee within Bellin um, and talked about this and got their, their, um, their, their insights and also just their, their blessing on what we're doing in, into this new adventure of team-based care. Great, that's very helpful, thank you. Joanna, do you wanna to add to that? Sure, so um, there are two, two main groups of leaders, I guess, uh, uh, and most practices. There's the clinical leadership, of which I am part, and we work in the practice, so we know, <laughs> we get it. Um, but, but I think the question is more geared towards how do you engage the people who aren't on the ground? And um, we, we have um, administrative counterparts who are also embedded in our practice, so uh, they see some of the issues, even though they're not in the exam room with the patient, they, they appreciate some of the, the struggles that the clinicians are facing, um, and we use those people as our partners to then go to the hospital hospital leadership. Um, those administrative partners are very helpful in helping us, the clinician leaders, speak the language of the hospital administrators um, so that we can explain things in, in terms that make sense to them and motivate them. Wonderful. Thank you. Steve, did you want to add anything to the conversation? Yeah. So I think that the beyond the care of patients and families, which is primary, the most important role of a leader is to responsible for the joy of his or her staff and to create social capital, which is the trust and interconnectedness of the colleagues that he or she is serving. And if we're serious about that, then we need to measure it on a regular basis. So we measure quarterly the joy and work, the engagement of frontline staff, so we know about where the hot spots are, where there's an opportunity. And we need to measure the effectiveness of chairs and their valid uh, tools out there to understand which leaders are effective at creating joy and social capital and, would, and who needs help. And if we don't pay attention to that, then we're remiss for the best care for our patients. So you got to measure it and then follow through with supporting leaders. And I'm talking about the leaders, not at the front line, Derek, but the, the leaders who are closest to uh, those who touch patients every day. And if, those, if their numbers are not satisfactory for uh, their participative management and their leadership abilities, and we can't support them to move the numbers up, we have to get them out of those roles because patients are suffering. Great, thank you very much. All great comments. Uh, I'm gonna turn a, a great question here from Edgar Wilson. Uh, how, how can the need for a sense of control among clinicians be balanced against the intrusion of technology, digitization, maybe even new forms of automation over time? And, and Kathy, I'm gonna turn to you with this one first because of that, that great graphic you had within your presentation. So how, how would you respond to that? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's very interesting. I'll have to I'll have to say that when we started our, our redesign and had that meeting, you know, listening to the physicians that they, they can't be successful um, with with the all the onus on them and their their um, eyes on the computer and away from the patient, 
So we started our redesign work and really looking at all of the tasks and reassigning to the appropriate person and then trickling it down to all of the core team members. The, uh, it was very interesting to see the dynamic of the physicians um, allowing that empowerment. So something that they um, were always accustomed to doing is doing the full um, documentation of the office visit now has the um, care team coordinators. Uh, they start the note, they stay in the office visit with the uh, physician so the physician can have the face-to-face -face time with the patient. And that care team coordinator then is doing the documentation. And then at the end of the visit, the, the, the plan is made, the physician is, walk, is leaving, the care team coordinator is staying in the room with the patient and then the uh, physician may have a little bit of, um, uh, of documentation to do and then they sign off on it. That takes a great amount of time because there's a great amount of trust that has to be um, encompassed in that level of empowerment. It, it, it all takes time for that physician to, to feel comfortable with that. Even though um, it was loud and clear, we need help, we need assistance, I wanna get back to the face-to-face -face time with my patients but allowing that to happen um, really took a, a great amount of time. And it does, it, as we're spreading our team-based model, um, we're finding it's about a good, good two months with, that when we go live that the physician is, is finally uh, feeling comfortable and kind of letting the, the care team coordinator um, populate that note on their own. Great, thank you. And, and Joanna, I'd like to give you an opportunity to add your thoughts. And, and before I do that, just kind of add a little more to the question from another participant. Um, ensuring that providers spend a meaningful amount of time with patients without feeling pressured to see more patients every day. I mean, that was, you know, very, uh, you know, as you talked about the, the space that people said I, um, that, that they have, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts around that. Sure. So uh, so it's interesting listening to, listening to Kathy talk about sharing the work of documenting is very similar to sharing the work of caring for the patient. So team-based care um, is not just about the direct care of the patient, but also around the documentation. And I and I do think that in terms of um, clinicians' frustration with with electronic medical records and documentation, the the answer probably is to to share that. Um, we we are not at a point yet where we have someone else documenting with us as clinicians in the room. Um, so so that that. Uh, responsibility does fall to us and it's a major source of, of frustration among our providers. Um, what we have done is try to um, work with our providers to teach them to, to use the, the EMR to the best that they can. Um, we have a clinician who's very good at that and we've again protected some of his time to kind of be an on the ground support person. Um, thinking about bringing joy to, to practice, he has instituted a Tuesday evening happy hour session and his tagline is, if the EMR is driving you to drink, embrace it. So you can, <laughs> you can go to his session, you can have wine and cheese and he'll show you some, some shortcuts on, on the EMR. But it is, it is a problem. In terms of the face-to-face uh, -face patient time, that I really do think you have to have the care team. So when you have a patient who's depressed or has a substance use disorder or doesn't understand their medications, you really need to be able to, to share that patient with a colleague, a pharmacist, a social worker in the practice. You can't do that in 20 minutes by yourself. Great. Thank you. Um, Derek and Steve, I'd like to get you in, involved with this question here that comes from from Kate Hansen-Roxas. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that the wrong way. Uh, what if answers to what matters to you are not the things that you can address, or at least not in the short, short term? Additional time off, different benefit structures, that sort of thing. Is it sufficient to begin by addressing other areas first? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think the, key, the really important thing is to, is to start uh, and ad address what you can address. Uh, and actually, in my experience, the things that tend to come up are things that are more personal to people than, than general, te general terms of conditions and, and employment opportunities. It's, it, it, it's often um, not, not unlike our relationship with patients where we assume that the things that we can readily measure are the things that they really care about. Um, the same often applies to our, our, our staff and our providers. But my general message, Mike, is yes, start, start wherever you can start, address whatever you can address, uh, and uh, the important thing is to get started. Great. Steve, what would you add to that? Derek, you're absolutely right. And so what we found when we looked uh, maybe four years ago now with 20 focus groups of the 20 
departments and divisions at Mayo who had the highest levels of burnout among staff and the lowest level of satisfaction was often the first part of the conversation was, well, we just need more nurses, we need more uh, clinical assistants, and, and we just want to throw more people at it. But then once we got into the conversations, we found out about all these inefficient, ineffective, poor quality processes that when you start fixing them one at a time, at the end of the day, you don't need any more people. And so, um, so like Derek does, you just need to start working on things that are within your control. The process, the collaborative process of addressing uh, opportunities is therapeutic in and of itself. And most of them end up showing the staff themselves that they actually don't need more people and they don't need more time. They just need to fix the broken processes or the ineffective processes. The worst thing to do is to start throwing resources at problems when you can't afford to throw resources at problems or you don't need to. So fix the system. So instead of dumping a, the clerical work from a doctor to a nurse and making the nurse taking his or her joy away, fix the broken EHR process uh, to make it um, as human friendly as possible. And the other part is that if I, some of the processes and opportunities to improve the joy are out of control of the local group, right? So then the, that's the other leader responsibility is to to communicate effectively with the organization to say, here's an issue that affects all departments, it's out of our control, and then work collaboratively to address that as well. Great. Thank you very much, Steve. Great comments. Um, I'm going to turn now to a question that's shown up a few times in the chat. Uh, I'll read John, John Weeks's comment here. I like the question about whether the IHI will adopt the quadruple aim. Hard to shift a good brand that hasn't fully caught on, but sure would give well-being and self-care a boost. Um, Derek, I'm going to turn to you for that one. Yeah, we're, we're asked often this question, and uh, we're all, it's always great to see people building off the triple aim. Um, and. Uh, People like Tom Bodenheimer and Chris Sinsky have kind of championed this idea of the quadruple aim. I think our preferred approach currently is to is to um, is to approach these two things in tandem in a connected and an integrated way, but to focus uh, resources on patients as we pursue the triple aim, and then to um, to pursue in a as I say in a connected and an integrated way, um, joy and work as a uh, as a specific and directed and co and concerted piece of work. So uh, if it helps people to make progress by thinking about it in terms of the quadruple aim, that's fine. Uh, but our, our preference currently is to, do the, is to do the two, but to connect them. Great. Thank you. We're just going to get to one more question before we uh, offer closing remarks from all of our panelists here. Um, and Erica asked a nice question here at the end. It was, it was mentioned to not address first the need for mindfulness, self-awareness, but to fix the system first. But how can you fix the system if leadership is burnt out itself? Um, and I'll, I'll just lob that one in there and see if anybody <laughs> wants to, to take on that one. Steve, Steve, I'm, I'm going to turn to you. <laughs> Steve, wh what are your thoughts around that? Well, this all starts with leaders. That who engage providers, touch patients, and it's an opportunity. So, so I, yeah, it's a tough situation. If you're, if the, the leaders that are in a place position to make a difference are burned out and don't see this opportunity, then it's the opportunity for others on the team to take a leadership role to reverse engage up the ladder the chair of the department, the nurse manager, and help bring them joy by the camaraderie. We know that camaraderie works. We do randomized control trials with docs. You get together, you talk about opportunities and your social isolation, your emotional exhaustion, your depersonalization, your cynicism all get better. So take a, so then it's the front, not the front line, sorry, Derek, but it's the, it's the nurses and doctors and social workers touching patients, looking up to their, uh, their leader and engaging the leader in this participative management opportunity to improve care and improve camaraderie. And so I think that's worth a try. Great. Thank you, Steve. And Steve, while I have you, why don't we start with you to do 
just a 60 second wrap up. What are your what are your closing thoughts on this topic and, and what's next? As Derek outlined, this is one of the biggest opportunities to improve the experience, safety, and quality of care for patients and their families. Burned out, joyless providers are not as safe, they're impaired, and so every, and 70% of our costs in healthcare are people, right? So if we can make incremental, meaningful improvements in joy, for this workforce that has the most important job of our country, uh, the dividends for organizations and for um, providers and staff and patients and families are real and within reach without a capital budget. That's great. Thank you so much for that, Stephen. Thanks for all your thoughtful comments during the show today. Uh, Joanna, we're going to turn to you now. Can you give us 60 seconds, your, your closing thoughts on today's topic? Sure. Uh, so, so I'm going to echo a little bit of what Steve said earlier, um, that that it's important to be thoughtful and not reactive. You don't just want to throw resources at the problem without figuring what the the underlying systems issues are. Um, and so, I think you know, really important to look at systems and processes that need to be fixed. Um, I would also say that small accomplishments count and they and they help, uh, but they aren't enough. We really do need to tackle tackle the the larger issues does not necessarily require a capital budget, but requires some high-level thinking and reorganization. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, Kathy, let's let's turn to you. Would you like to share your, your closing thoughts on the topic? Sure. Thank you. Um, you know, for us in our organization, I was just kind of listening and, and um, reflecting on, on what my thoughts would be. Um, really, for us, it re-energizes. It re-energizes everyone from from upper leadership all the way um, through our organization. Um, it also gives the opportunity for everyone, since we are redesigning, um, everyone can come to the table and, and get into the right um, skill set or doing the right skill set for the patient outcomes um, and improving the patient experience. And then also for us, you know, our three wins, the win for the patient, win for the care team, win for the system. Everything that we have designed in our care team model um, is the focus around those three wins. And really for us, for the system, by doing this, it not only improves um, the patient or the team satisfaction in, the, in their current work, but also our retention rate. We have been successful with recruiting physicians because of our team-based care model. And, and it's, it's certainly opened the doors for other healthcare professionals who are seeing what they're, what the, their profession is doing in our healthcare system, and it's really making recruitment um, be successful, and also overall for our system, preparing from moving from fee-for-service to value-based. It certainly is, you know, encompassing those three wins is just has been just tremendous for us. Great, thank you for your fantastic comments today, Kathy. And Derek, we're going to turn finally to you to uh, give some closing thoughts. Just a few things, Mike. Uh, so, firstly. Uh, I think people um, should be ready to commit to this for the long term. This, this is not a project. It's a bit like cultural change and what Edgar Schein says about cultural change is that you change the culture as you do the work. I think it's the same with joy and work. This is not a separate project to be run by HR. This, this is a new way of, uh, of behaving towards each other and, and uh, a new set of values and cultures. Uh, second thing I would say is take care of yourself you're much more likely to be of uh, help and support to your colleagues if you take some care of yourself. Uh, and there are many, many resilience tools out there that you can use, but I think that's really important. Uh, third, I, I want to echo what Joanna said, and that's celebrate every step. This, you, this is going to take a while, but make sure that we pause to celebrate along the way. And then the final thing you can do is help us because we would love to hear from you as we develop this uh, framework at IHI and we get ready to support um, health systems who want to create joy in work. So please let us know what you're doing uh, to raise joy in work in your organization. What changes are you making? How are you going about testing those changes? What are the results that you're seeing? Uh, and what are you using to measure your progress? Uh, so we would love your help uh, to um, to 
finalise our thinking around what this framework should be and to help us to um, create some tools that might be useful to your colleagues. Thank you, Mike. Great. Thank you, Derek. And thank you to again to Joanna, to Kathy, to Steve, fantastic panelists today. And thank you, of course, to all of the great listeners out there. It was very active chat, great questions that came in uh, throughout the program. So thank you very much for your participation. Next up on WIHI on May 26th, we're going to do in healthcare in motion, making sense of a moving picture. Well, we'll be joined by Don Goldman, uh, Chief Medical and Scientific Officer at IHI, and, and some other guests. And then June, we're going to do uh, nurturing trust, substance abuse in maternal and newborn health. For more information on those, visit ihi.org backslash WIHI. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off. Look for that option, and we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that will pop up. We want to know what worked for you today and how to continue to make WIHI a better program. Check out the archive pages for WIHI where you'll find an audio download of this program, plus all the resources posted by tomorrow morning. You can also find the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and if you like what you hear, we'd love you to write a review on iTunes. Any questions whatsoever about this or anything related to the program, info at IHI.org. Feel free to suggest, of course, future show topics. We're always looking for new things to cover. Uh, thanks again the people who make WIHI possible, John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rosner, Val Werber, Ruth James, and Haley Ladd. And thanks also to Jessica Perlow uh, for help on Twitter today. It is my privilege to step in for Madge today and host a program that's also about that's that's so much about spirited learning and improving health and patient care for all of us. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I am Mike Britton. Have a great day. <laughs>